As I mentioned earlier, we are returning to our Genesis series, and uh, we're picking up with Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, some light fare for our morning. And as I was studying, it seemed to me that all of chapter 19 really falls together. And so we're going to just read the whole chapter. You can find this on page 13 of your pew Bible. I'll begin in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to meet at the, to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any men. Let, let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do not do to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them, and they shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the dis disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. 
Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. If you'll join me in praying the prayer of illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from 2 Peter chapter 2, the first 10 verses. You can find it in your pew Bibles beginning on page uh, 1018. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. The condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in the prayer for illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. You may be seated. If this afternoon, my wife said she heard on the radio it could snow, if it snows tonight, this evening, or if in the next year there is a drought, we're probably not going to say, well, this is happening because we made God angry, or the gods angry. We'd probably not say anything spiritual about this natural phenomena. We don't tend to do that. We don't tend to explain the weather with supernatural explanations these days. And I doubt many of us here believe in ghosts. We probably don't find a miracle around every corner. We don't see, for example, the Virgin Mary in every piece of toast. I hope no one here is really into crystals or tarot. Our first recourse, generally, when we see something that we don't quite understand is, is science. It's nature. It's natural. That's my first inclination, and I'm a pastor after all. It's not some vague explanation about how we've angered the heavens. If you ask me about the weather, I'm more likely to talk about cold fronts, or it's an El Nino year, or any number of things. Not moral decay. That's pretty normal, I think, for moderns. That's how we act. But then there's a, farther, a further question. What about angels? What about demons? What about miracles in the Bible? What about heaven? These are all also supernatural things. Are we inclined to explain them away, explain them naturally? Some would say as moderns that we're pushed away from supernatural explanations of anything. I confess as I'm translating this, often these two angels are just called men. They're just men. An angel can just mean messenger. Maybe these are just two prophets. I think that, but it's pretty clear that they're divine beings coming to bring destruction. But there's that pressure. What if it's not? What if it's something more, more normal? Some say that as moderns, we, we are pushed away from things that we can't explain, pushed away from supernatural things. To put it another way, it seems that for many, to believe in a heavenly spiritual uh, reality is just really hard today. It's harder than it was for generations before. My mom gets a parking spot and she talks about how much God loves her. I get a parking spot and I say, it's not crowded here today. We tend, as moderns, to have these kind of vertical blinders. We don't ever look up. We don't ever look past what we can see. 
Abraham, as Hebrews says, looked for the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was looking for a heavenly city. He was looking past what he could see. Our faith is built on believing things that are certain, but things that we can't perceive with our eyes, touch with our hands any longer. Our faith is built on things not just horizontal that we see every day, but vertical, transcendent. As we look here, there is a massive vertical dimension that we often scoff at. We'll come back to that. But since we paused for a while for Christmas, we're re-entering Genesis. So it's been a while since we did Genesis 18. But I want to remind you about some of that because this is all one passage. First and foremost, I, I mentioned in my last sermon, there's this kind of spatial dimension where you start at Genesis 18 is where you end Genesis 19. And it kind of walks through. You go out to Sodom and back. And that's why we saw today that Abraham goes back out to the place. He goes outside of his tent where he met God to look on Sodom. And then he returns to his tent. There's this out and back uh, structure to these two chapters. And there's also in that structure parallels. You see hospitality to the three with Abraham to the two with Lot. You see the meal. Both uh, offer a feast. You see there's a plea. Not only does Abraham plea, but Lot makes a plea. There are other elements as well. Abraham had been visited by the Lord and two companions. He offered them a feast. That language was very temple-oriented, sacrificial language. He had provided an appropriate welcome for the Lord. And then he heard about this destruction. Now we're going through that second part, the mirror part of that structure. And not only are we hearing echoes back to what we just had with Abraham, there's also echoes backwards to the flood. This passage and the flood take up a huge portion of Genesis. We just read a whole chapter about this destruction. The flood has multiple chapters, and it's not just the theme of judgment that ties these things together. God remembers Noah. God remembers Abraham. God rains down water in the flood. God rains down fire and sulfur here. There are other verbal parallels, but think about the end of the story. Noah fails by getting drunk, and his children, his child in particular, Ham, sins against him. It's the same fate that Lot meets. But here, there's an increase of the wickedness. Noah had righteous offspring. They protected him, the other two. They covered him up. They took care of him. Lot is worse off. He's like Ham and Canaan. He's, he's given a people, but they're not a chosen people. They're not a righteous people. It may also be the case that we're looking forward to Egypt and the plagues. God is going to judge again. He's going to judge supernaturally the Egyptians and deliver God's people, Abraham's seed. There's one more parallel, and it's outside of the book of Genesis, but it's so striking that we can't ignore it. In the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 19, there's a story of a Levite and his concubine. And the men of the city, they come and they pound on the door. They want him to come out. Except it has a much darker ending than even here. 
and it breeds a tribal war. The judgment on the people is not supernatural. It's war, brother against brother. The end of Judges is chaotic. Um, it's chaotic linguistically. I, I, Hebrew is what I do. And when you read that passage, it's hard to keep up. And one of the things you get is the impression that just everything is spiraling out of control. We see that here as well in this parallel. Things are spiraling out of control in Sodom. If you're a note taker, uh, there are some uh, points in the back of your bulletin. So we'll talk about how little Lot lives in Sodom. I like the uh, alliteration there. The big judgment against Sodom and somewhat the judgment against Lot. And then we'll talk about Lot's righteousness. Why was Lot saved? Why does Peter say Lot is righteous? But to start with Lot in Sodom, the first thing that came to my mind is that all throughout this passage, Lot gets no respect. He's like Rodney Dangerfield. He gets no respect. All throughout the story, he's treated poorly. The only persons in Genesis 18 and 19 who seem to care at all about Lot are Abraham and the Lord. Nobody else really cares what he has to say. We saw as we, we heard, as we read, that the men of the city belittled him, they threatened him. When it says this fellow here in our translation, it's just the word for one, this one, this one over here. He thinks he can judge us. It'll be worse for him. They threaten his life, his own self. They tell him to mind his station. Lot, you're, you're just an immigrant. You think you're any better off than these two? We'll do the same to you. He's laughed at. This is less intense than what the men of Sodom say, but his own sons-in-law laugh at him. They treat him like a crazy person. We'll come back to this a little later. But this is the third instance of laughing in chapters 17 through 19. Sarah laughs at God's promises, but then she laughs in joy when they come to be. When she hears them in her own ears, she will name her son Isaac after that, I, that laughter uh, word. Isaac is related to the word for laughter. But Lot is laughed at. He's treated as ridiculous. They don't respond to Lot in joy about the promise, about the possibility of being saved. And Lot's daughters, as I already mentioned, do not treat him well. They sin against him. We see that especially in the parallel with what happened with Noah. It's not as clear here that there's a curse sanction given upon them like it is in Genesis, but that parallel implies this is a cursed action. Why does all of this happen to Lot? Why does he get no respect? Well, first and foremost, what Genesis has been preparing us for is that Lot has chosen poorly in his life. He has chosen to trust in the same things as the men of Sodom. He's, he's a lot more like the wicked. He dwells among them. If we think back, we remember back, we've heard about Sodom, we've heard about Lot throughout this section about Abraham. And we can remember when Lot and Abraham separated. And basically it said, you know, you choose one side, Abraham says to Lot, you choose a place, and I'll go to the other place. What does it say? Why does Lot choose where he chooses? It says, 
he looked toward Sodom, and it was like the garden of God. It was well watered. It was good land. And so he chose it. But it had more Canaanites. And before that's over, it says Lot even put his tent as far as Sodom. He went really far. He went close to the wicked city. By the next chapter in 14, Lot is said to live in Sodom. Lot was dwelling in Sodom. At this point, where we start out, where's Lot? He's at the gate. Lot is at the gate of the city. And that doesn't sound very uh, grand to us, but that's kind of like city hall in the ancient world. The gate is where, uh, especially in the Old Testament, you did all the business. In uh, the law, this is where judges would judge. This is where legal things would take place, at the gate of the city. And that's where Lot's sitting. He's at the middle of everything. He has a house. He has a roof. He's not living in a tent. He's a landowner. And he's sitting at the city gate. And Lot has been progressively enticed by the protection that a city offers. We see how reticent he is in this story to leave the city. I can't do that. I can't live by myself. No matter how depraved these cities were, Lot couldn't imagine his life without them. Stark, stark contrasts to Abraham, who has been called to separate. It's where we started this section in 12. Leave. Leave your household. Leave your father. Leave your land. Lot is not following the example of his righteous uncle. He's instead gone to live with Canaanites. And as we've also been prepared, Canaanites are not the good folks. They're not the people you want to hang around. He's chosen to turn back. He went with Abraham, and then he went back a little ways. And throughout this story, as I've already mentioned, he's reticent. He's loitering. He's delaying and tarrying. He's slow. It's so bad that the angels literally have to take him by the hand and pull them out of the city. Don't know if they flew him out or dragged him out. No clue. But they had to get them out. They couldn't just let them do it on their own. They wouldn't. And then he goes on and makes his plea. Lot, please, please let me just dwell in this little city. And it says, that, well, that's why it's called Zoar. Zoar sounds like the word for little. Just let me dwell in the little city. It, it has enough righteous in it, right? The, the percentage is right. You won't destroy this one. And I want us to also reflect on this. Lot has not only chosen to dwell among wicked people, he's chosen to dwell among people who will turn and hurt him at a moment's notice. They threaten him. He tries to appeal to them. He tries to use their own logic, and they say, we'll do worse to you. This, again, is a contrast with Abraham. Abraham engages in diplomacy with kings, and they listen. They respect Abraham. Abraham's blessed. Not Lot. Lot gets no respect. Second Peter, which we heard read today, describes Lot as distressing himself. He's torturing himself in the presence of the wicked. Lot knew better. But he was distressed by, these wicked con by the wicked conduct. But he chose to dwell among them himself. So before we move to considering the destruction, I want us to pause and ask ourselves, how much are we like Lot? I see a lot of myself in Lot. Tied to the comforts of this world, 
hard to leave them behind. As I started, it's hard for me to set my mind on things above where Christ is, to not be focused on the horizontal things of this world, to not chase after property, to not chase after comfort. We often act as though this is all there is, and that's what Lot was doing. Yeah, Abraham had that great call to go out and separate, and the Lord's going to bless him. I'm just going to go back a little ways and go dwell in, in this Canaanite city. Tomorrow, it'll be Monday. You'll get up, you'll pay bills, you'll go to work, you'll make dinner, it'll be normal. None of those things are bad, but they shouldn't take all of our focus. We can't forget the glory of the world to come. We can't forget our fellowship with the Almighty God. No career, no dinner, no restaurant, no wonderful craft beer is more important than God, than setting our minds on things above. And so before we move on to this destruction, I just want to plea with you, remember Christ in your day-to-day -day lives. Remember Christ day after day, week after week. Live in light of what he's done for us, which we'll hear about. There's a warning here for us about being too attached to the things of this world, that we're not attached enough to eternity. Moving on to the big destruction. If Lot's being belittled, there's a massive destruction going on here. And we have this judgment on the city. Well, what is the problem? Why, why are we having this judgment? Surely there are other wicked areas in the world. Well, we've been prepared for this in chapter 13 and chapter 18 by the Lord constantly reminding us the wickedness of Sodom is great. The wickedness of Sodom is great. And here, in chapter 18, we see that there's an outcry against them. There's a grave sin. Scripture describes things as crying out to God often. And that's probably our first hint at what's going on here. So we see in Genesis elsewhere and in the law, uh, which is probably one of the most immediate contexts for the original audience, that bloodshed, bloodshed cries out. Think about Abel's blood crying out of the ground. Bloodshed cries out to God. It defiles holy places. Also, the outcry that often comes to God is from widows and orphans. The cry of the oppressed coming before the Lord. And in the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 16, verse 49, this is directly applied to Sodom and Gomorrah. The widow, the orphan, they cried out and God destroyed Sodom. We also have the very immediate context of Abraham's plea. There's no righteous ones there. There's not even ten. God agreed he wouldn't destroy it if he found ten. There's no one righteous there. And the story makes sure we know it. Who comes? It's the men from young and old, each to the last men. It's both small and great. It's everybody. Everybody is coming to do this wicked thing deed. These Canaanites here, they fail the basic test. They can't even be hospitable to strangers. They do not love the foreigner. They do not love Lot who sojourns with them. They get a zero. And then there's the question. We associate Sodom with a particular sin. Is homosexuality an issue here? And I would say, yes, it is an issue, but it's not the only issue. 
It may be the extent, right? It's saying it got this bad. Sodom is evidencing the outcry that had already come against them by this action. The angels were already coming to destroy them before this happened. This is an exemplary episode of what they had already been doing. And everyone, everyone agrees that the Old Testament condemns what's happening here in no uncertain terms, including the sin of homosexuality. It's also worth noting that the violence and the violation that happens here is happening to visitors, to sojourners, to those categories of oppressed people, the widows and the orphans, the sojourners, those who are supposed to be cared for, the least of these. And given that mention of sins that were happening before this event, it's likely that they weren't very kind to widows and orphans. It's likely that they were already sinning greatly against the vulnerable in their midst. And so we get this composite picture of Sodom and all of the cities of the valley. The Hebrew word is the circle. There's kind of an indent. And all the cities in this circle are wicked. It reminds me of Genesis 6. All their thoughts were only evil continually. That's the picture we get here. Full of totally wicked people, from the youngest to the oldest. So how are we to understand this? Why is God breaking in? There's wicked people everywhere. Why is God breaking in here? First, we need to remember those two parallels that I mentioned already. The flood, which was an exceptional case, and the instance in Judges, which is a much more natural and not supernatural moment of judgment. Like the flood, divine judgment is breaking in on the world as it is. When God comes and inspects, there's often a curse sanction because there's sin present. You can think of the garden right after they sin, what happens? God comes and he meets out the curses. He also gives promises. Or the flood, the outcry comes up to God. Their wickedness is so great that he destroys. And only those saved, only those on the ark are saved and I won't go into this in depth, but you can go back to our website and listen, we did three sermons through the flood, and I did one on how the ark is like a temple. It's a holy place. It's the first place we see that only kosher animals can go in. There's a distinction applied there for the first time. The holy place, the holy people, they're the ones saved. God's wrath broke in. It's a picture for us. And the law that will come to Moses will have an aspect of this as well. Wickedness cannot dwell before God in the temple, so it will be cast out. And so here, the outcry of Sodom is so great that it reached heaven, and God sends inspectors. Go see how bad it is. And when God, even through his angels, comes down, he cannot tolerate the wickedness. To echo Abraham in the last chapter, the God of all the earth will judge justly. It can abide no wickedness, his presence, his holiness. And so it breaks out. And it will break out again on the Canaanites in the conquest, but not perfectly and totally as here. Many Canaanites will be spared because Israel's not faithful, not because God does not judge them. But it's a picture of that last day judgment breaking in 
God is judging their wickedness. And this event becomes not only for us today when we talk about hellfire and brimstone or Sodom and Gomorrah, a picture of wickedness, but even throughout our Bibles. You can just look up the word Sodom in the Bible and you'll find again and again that it comes up as exemplary wickedness. Why? Because it was destroyed. Not because it's more wicked than other cities, but it was one of the moments where God broke in and showed us what sin deserves. Sermons have been described as hellfire and brimstone. That's an allusion to this passage. Now, you shouldn't preach every passage as though hellfire and brimstone are going to break out of heaven. Some people do. But it's an equally uh, important thing to preach it when it occurs. God will set everything right. He will conquer his enemies, the rebels. He will remake the world into perfection. He will wipe away every tear from the eye of his people. But it will be like Sodom or like the flood, or like Egypt. There will be judgment and salvation. There will be guilt and judgment and grace and mercy. God will judge wickedness, all wickedness, including our own. It cannot stand in his presence. It cannot go without an answer. Often we think about how can God make a world where such wickedness goes on, where such bad things happen. And the biblical answer is that God does judge the wicked, that wickedness is not eternal, but righteousness is eternal. Moving on quickly, this judgment filters down somewhat into Lot's own family. He loses his potential sons-in-law, probably betrothed to his two daughters, and his wife, in this destruction. We've already talked a bit about his sons-in-law, but his wife, first she's described as behind him. She's tarrying more than Lot, and Lot's tarrying a lot. And then she turns around. One wonders if she starts going back. But she's destroyed, she's caught up in the destruction. She identifies with the wicked city. And Lot's life in that cave that we read about, it's a judgment too. His daughters want to go about the way of all the earth. They want to do things by the world's ways. They don't trust their father. They don't respect their father. All those things that Lot had chased, stability in a city, they're gone. He's dwelling in a cave. He's terrified. And he's given a people... These two peoples were sometimes enemies, sometimes friends of Israel. Uh, they spoke a very similar language. You can just, if you know Hebrew well, you can just read these languages. Moab and Ammon sound like plays on, on uh, fatherhood. So Av is the word for father. Kind of sounds like who or, or where is your dad? Ben-Ami is the son of my people. Perhaps a reference to the nature of the conception. And these two people live above Israel, and they're sometimes friends, and they're sometimes enemies, but they're never, never worshiping Yahweh. They're cut off. They're broken off. Lot's line is not the promised line. And so again, we have a moment. Do we laugh at judgment? 
When I think of judgment, when I think of hellfire and brimstone sermons, the image I get is Homer Simpson wearing the sandwich board that says the end is near and he's ringing his bell and everybody's dismissing him as insane. If we walked outside and somebody was telling us that at, you know, 2.45 tomorrow the world was going to end, we'd go, cool, we're going to go the other way and go around you to get to lunch. We're not going to... You know, we're going to take a different bus route. We're going to do something differently so we don't have to look at this crazy person. Lot's probably being treated the way we treat someone like Harold Camping, right? It's going to end on the 21st of May. There's a really great song called the 21st of May that's about that. While there are laughable moments, there are people who are legitimately crazy, What we do know is that judgment is a certainty. We shouldn't laugh at the concept of judgment in general. It's a real thing. Sin requires judgment. To believe in it is not to be insane. God's law requires an answer. But Lot is called in the New Testament righteous. Here he is saved. Why? Well, let's look carefully At verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. What we see here is that God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot. Lot is not righteous on his own. It's not that Lot's good. It's not that Lot did what needed to be done. He had to be dragged out of there. And once he was dragged out of there, there was a concession made to him. Yeah, you can live in this city. Lot didn't do anything to be righteous. Lot is saved because God remembers someone who's not him, who did the right thing. This is a step more than what we saw in Noah, where Noah saved because God remembered Noah. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that If we're a lot like Lot, which I think we are, then we also need to be saved by the righteousness of another one. We cling to this world. We're slow to embrace God's word. We struggle when we hear the word of judgment. We struggle when we hear that this world will be condemned, that things will pass away. We cling to what we know. We don't want to turn our back on this old world, this city of men, the things that we love. But God takes our hand and he brings us out like he did Lot on the basis of the righteousness of another person. It's the promised seed of Abraham that this account foreshadows. I'm not talking about Isaac. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. He took on this judgment that was due to us. He paid what he did not owe. Judgment does not just break into history in the garden or in the flood, or in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the crucifixion of our Savior is described in terms of judgment. It's like the day of the Lord. It's the day when things break in. The sky gets dark. Jesus paid what he did not owe, that eternal penalty that belonged to us because of our sin. Christian sins are judged. They're judged on Christ on the cross so that the last day we can come before him and be vindicated. It's the whole basis of the New Testament. That's why Paul can say, you have been consecrated.
to be in the new temple. You can go before him without fear. The book of Hebrews will say you can, in confidence, by the blood of Jesus, enter into his presence today. Because Jesus paid that eternal penalty. And we're all like Lot. We're all sometimes wicked. We're all sometimes slow. And the picture of the destruction of Sodom is a warning to us. It's the sentence of God's law against us. And we're also like Lot that we need to hope in the righteousness of someone else, the promised seed, the one who was promised to Abraham. And it's not just a temporal salvation that Lot's receives, but we receive something better. We receive an eternal salvation. We receive his own righteousness clothed around us that changes us. We have a Savior who intercedes for us, like Abraham interceded for Lot. We have someone who hears us, who passes our prayers along to the Father, sanctifies our weak and feeble obedience. We need a Savior who succeeds where Abraham fails again and again. Just after this, we'll hear again about Abraham and Sarah dealing with a pagan king. And Abraham doesn't trust the Lord. Or Adam failed, or Noah failed, or Lot failed. We need someone who does not fail, who can give us his perfect obedience, and we have that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whereas Abraham was remembered and Lot was saved, Christ is remembered and the church, God's people, are saved. We can stand to be in the presence of God without fear because of that, no matter how wicked we are. Lot is a lot like the men of Sodom. He stoops to their level, offering his daughters to them. But we hear, like we heard today in our service, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no fear of Sodom for those who set their eyes, their hearts on Christ by the Spirit. All our righteousness is found in him and in no other place. And so we must set our eyes on him and not the things of this world. They will not save us. Only Christ will. And when we set our eyes on the things above, we will get eternal rewards, blessings. We'll understand created things in their proper place. Feebly, now in this world, and perfectly in the world to come. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty and most merciful God, we recognize that we, after our father, Adam, have failed to keep your law. We've ignored your righteousness and your holy standard. We have ignored the ends for which we were created. We are like Lot and the men of Sodom, and we place ourselves and our pleasure and our comfort at the center of our own lives. But we are thankful that your son has come that he has paid the price owed by sinners, that he has given us his righteousness, that he has poured his spirit upon us, that we can change, that we can truly love you by your grace. We ask that by your spirit you would create faith in Christ, that you would strengthen faith in Christ, that you would set our eyes on the things above where Christ is seated, and that you would conform us to his image by your spirit. We pray that in this life we would begin to serve you as we ought, that we would love you as we ought. The Almighty God, and that we would love our neighbors who are made in your image. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, please, by the work of your Spirit, give us gratitude for the work of your Son. 
that we may look to him for all of our righteousness this day and throughout our lives. We pray all of this in his name and by the Spirit. Amen.